Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Now, in today's episode, we're going to go deep into consciousness. What is consciousness and the science behind consciousness? Today's guest is Peter Russell, who is a best-selling author of books like The Brain Book, The Global Brain, The Awakening Earth, Seeds of Awakening, and From Science to God, and most recently, Letting Go of Nothing. Peter and I have this fantastic conversation about consciousness, about the global brain, the global consciousness, and what is happening in our world today, the shift that's happening, and so much more. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Peter Russell. How are you doing, Peter? Lovely to be with you, Alex. Yes, great here. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been an admirer of yours and your work for quite a while, and uh, I'm excited to talk about your new book, Letting Go, but I just want to ask you some really you know, good, deep questions. I like to always go to the deep end of the pool, of the spiritual pool, to just kind of swim in that deep end where it's a little scary, but yet that's where we grow. Good. Good. <laughs> so let me ask you your first question. How did you get started on your spiritual path? Um, it was gradual. There was never, you know, some people had this moment of awakening or <laughs> transformation. I never had anything like that. I think it's as a kid, I was always interested in the mind and consciousness and things. It was, you know, playing around like kids do, sort of making myself dizzy or trying self-hypnosis and stuff. But at the same time, I was, you know, I was interested in science. I was a budding mathematician and I went to Cambridge University in England studying maths and then theoretical physics. And I thought that was where my direction was going to be going. And then gradually realized that however much physics I did or anybody did, it was never going to explain why we were conscious in the first place. And this struck me as an anomaly because you know, all mathematics and most of theoretical physics takes place in the mind. I mean, we do experiments, but all the, you know, the working things out, the hypotheses, the conclusions, the laws and all the math, it all takes place in the mind. And yet, according to science, we shouldn't have a mind. We should just be sort of biological robots going about their business. Right. And that struck me as strange. And so I started thinking, OK, what is consciousness? How does it relate to the brain? Those sorts of questions and actually did a degree in um, neuroscience, thinking that would help, but it didn't. They weren't interested in consciousness. They were just interested in the brain, which was fascinating. 
and then I realized the way to study consciousness was to look inside like consciousness is a subjective thing it's not something material you can measure out there so the way we explore consciousness is by turning our attention within ourselves and observing our own consciousness and so that took me off into looking at techniques of meditation and things at this stage i'd been totally i would say an atheist i completely dismissed religion as a kid like just a load of weird old ancient mumbo jumbo that was completely irrelevant to modern life but as i delved more into meditation i started getting interested in eastern philosophies and things and began to see there was something underlying the different spiritual traditions and that deep down they all had a very similar core and that's i got fascinated in that so i got more and more interested in what was spirituality not so much the different religions but what was that common essence underneath them all and it seemed to me they were all saying in one way or another you know we, we get stuck in a very short-sighted worldview whether it's you know call it self-centeredness egocentric materialistic whatever and they were saying this limits us it limits our relationships it limits our potential and there's ways to step out of this and become in the most neutral terms in touch with our with our true self our inner being and that that has great benefit and so i just became fascinated by that and started looking into what is the what is the essence this deep deep essence of spirituality and the more i did that the more you know i was practicing meditation and the more and more this seemed to be something really important to do that the world we're in today if we look at it most of the problems either have their source or the reason we're not dealing with them properly come back to human thinking human needs human values human greed love of power self-centeredness whatever and so i began to see that what the spiritual teachings were saying was actually going to be really really important for the world today so that's that's how i got into it and then you know i'd left behind i the world of science i still keep an active interest in it but i just became more and more interested in meditation teaching meditation writing about its value in the world and trying to bring it down to earth to get rid of all the spiritual mumbo jumbo that surrounds it to get rid of all of that and just say okay here is something very basic very practical and really valuable and so that that's where i am today and that you know the book you mentioned my latest book letting go of nothing is really a sort of summary of what I've gleaned from my own experience of exploring myself over the years. It's so fascinating because as a mathematician, and as a physicist, that uses a different segment of the brain than the more artistic side or the more um, cre creative side. In your experience, where does spirituality sit in the brain? Is it more analytical or is it more creative? Right. Um, yeah, I wouldn't like to say where it sits in the brain. I always feel that's very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're 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 really you're talking about here what what's often called the left and right sides of the brain. Right. It's thought to be more analytical, the right more creative, etc. It's interesting that over the years now the the view of that has got much much more sophisticated. Okay. Uh, and what it seems is the left brain is really good at focus tasks where the mind needs to focus in on a particular thing like you know 
language or solving a problem or doing something. Whereas the right side of the brain seems to have a much more relaxed, open awareness, open attention. Like that's why it's creative, it's artistic, that side, uh, musical, where you're not focused in analyzing, but you're more, it's more open awareness. And I think meditation fits into that very well in the sense that most of the time we live in a sort of focused mode of awareness where we're doing something, we're looking at something, we're working on something, or even just thinking about something, we're focusing on a thought. And spirituality and meditation is really letting the attention relax, letting the focus relax. So it's coming to a more open awareness. I mean, there are there are many practices of meditation which do focus the attention in which about concentration so those, those i would say are using the left brain more but the sorts of practices i'm interested in are those that allow the mind to relax which is really about allowing the attention to relax so in that sense i would say it's more letting the left brain you know go and coming over to the more relaxed view of the right brain but even so i'm very dubious about putting too much on left right that's true the basic thing is it's about for me it's about letting letting the focus of the attention soften and i often say you know when i'm leading a meditation you know normally we, we're zoomed in on something do the opposite zoom out so you zoom out you're like you're stepping back and like ah here is here is the present moment in all its richness and fullness it's almost like a uh, it's almost like either you have a very concentrated uh drink and then when you meditate you start allowing the water to fill in and starts diluting everything to a place where then you just are you can't even focus on what you can't even taste what was originally there you're allowing all this other stuff to come in and just like relax and it's you're you're gone almost yeah 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 We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now, all your experience in meditation, what are some of the discoveries you've made in all of the studying and you know, your own personal, obviously your own personal journey, but you know, you've studied, did you study with the Maharashi? Yes. Uh, and what, what did you learn about meditation? What are the discoveries you've had about meditation? Not only on the physical but also obviously on the spiritual. Right. Well, just, I mean, on the physical, what has become clear with a lot of research that's been done over the years is that it seems to be eliciting the exact opposite to the stress response. If you look at, you know, when you're under stress, the muscles tense, tense, the heart rate goes up, the breathing gets shallower, and you get various hormones in the body. When you look at meditation, it seems to do the opposite. You know, the heart rate slows down, the breathing softens, the muscles relax. So it seems to be triggering the opposite to the stress response, which some researchers have called the relaxation response. So that's the general, and there's lots more physically, but that's, that's the general thing physically, which obviously, you know, makes it valuable, because I think we all live in a world today where we are getting almost everywhere we go there's something to worry about be anxious about get stressed by or just, just the general busyness of like doing this doing that rushing over to do this so that's on the physical side on the what i really learned i think um and probably more important what i'm interested in is in the practice is how do we how do we do this most efficiently is effortlessness is not not to try not to put any effort in because as soon as you do, well, firstly, you're, you're focusing the attention a bit, which I said, you know, I see meditation as the opposite of that. 
but also where putting any effort in is actually doing the opposite from relaxing and what i see meditation is, is allowing the mind to relax so it's really it's a deep form of just just letting go and just like coming back ah here here i am and so what I, what I've I think what I've learned most in, in meditation is that it's not so much we're trying to get somewhere that is more peaceful or happier or something. We're not so much trying to get somewhere else or discover something new, but that state of feeling at ease and peace is a natural state of mind. It's how we feel when everything is okay, when we're not anxious or worried or whatever planning something when everything is okay we feel okay inside and so meditation for me is really about taking away the the layers or the veils that hide that natural state of peace and contentment so rather than seeing it as you know spirituality is going as going to find contentment or something it's more the opposite it's removing the blocks to our awareness of that deep sense of contentment which is always there but we don't normally notice it's funny that you say when you you when i was younger i would go through periods we all always most of the time especially when you're younger are, are worried about something school friends money car something and there were small moments i i, I never forget this is before i ever started really truly my spiritual kind of quest where I sat for a minute and I said, everything's okay. And it scared me. I had to go look for something to worry about. The mind needed to like, no, 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 wait a minute. I go, you've got, you've got the money. You've not, you're, you're out of debt. You're this and that. You've got a girlfriend. You've got a dog who's healthy. You've got a, you've got a home. And then you just start, wait a minute. What's there has to be something I'm worried about. Oh Yeah. And then I'll look for like, oh, that one guy looked at me the wrong way yesterday. It was fascinating. As you look back on that kind of time, you're just like how the mind needs to find something to worry about, have that negative bias that yes. has been so spoken about so many, so much about the negative bias keeping us alive. Yeah. And it worked when we were in the Savannah and there was a tiger. Uh, but now, and some people are still in a Savannah with a tiger and it still works for them. <laughs> but for the rest of us, I don't know about you, but when I walk out the door, I'm not worried so much about the tiger anymore. Right. I'm, I'm much more worried about the tax man. Uh <laughs> but you're absolutely right. It's this, yes, it's negative bias. And it actually, it makes sense from an, an organic point of view of an organism to be on the lookout for danger. And, but what happens with us, I think it's always partly social conditioning where right. we've got this thing where we're, always on the lookout for what could be wrong what could be wrong what could be wrong and we miss the fact that things are, can be perfectly okay in the moment and when we realize they're perfectly okay in the moment you know you're walking out the door the tax man isn't there presenting you with a <laughs> subpoena or something <laughs> He's not, it's not raining and you know and so this is where it's really important i think to begin to notice what's happening in the mind and this is what i think just meditation or introspection generally does we begin to notice ah there i go again off on that trip or there whatever it is and what i thought i mean another thing i've really learned from meditation is we have the power 
to choose not to follow a particular thought. It's so easy to get grabbed in it. You're, you're waiting about the tax man, say it's so easy to get caught up in that. Oh my God, whatever did I do? And it can go on and on and on. But as soon as you recognize it, like, oh, there I go, tax man again. As soon as you recognize it, we actually can choose not to follow it anymore. We can just say, thank you. But right now, I don't need to worry about that. I'm not going to follow you anymore. I'm not going to follow that thought. And when we do, I find two things happen. One, there's always that sense of relief. It's like, ah, oh, just a little sense of relief because any worry is creating a little tension. And so as soon as we interrupt a worrying thought, as soon as we pause a worrying thought, there's always that sense of, ah. Oh. And in that, the present begins to emerge again. We don't have to do anything to become present. It's like uh, worrying about, you know, going off on that particular thought was taking us out of our awareness of the present. When we stop that thought, it's like, oh yes, oh, oh, there's that bird song I hadn't noticed, or, or my feet are cold, or whatever it is. We just the present reveals itself again, and again, people talk about, you know, you've got to, you've got to be present. And again, I feel it's the opposite. If we're not, if we're not worrying or focused or doing something else, the present being present is just naturally there. We don't have. And of yeah. course, the thought will come back. The thought will come back. Our other thoughts will come back. So it's not—it's not like oh, you're just there and that's it. But to me, it's that coming back again and again and again. Like ah, oh, yes, ah, oh, here I am. How how's it feel to be sitting in my body right now? Ah, oh, feels good. And this little twitch over here. Okay, what's going on here? Yeah, it's, it's and as as you get older, those little 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 aches get a little harder sometimes. Thank you. <laughs> Don't tell me. <laughs> I tell my daughters, my daughter's like, oh, my back hurts. I'm like, your back doesn't hurt. You don't know what back pain is. Are you kidding me? She's 10. Right. <laughs> you know, like, please. But um, but when regards to meditation, I've been meditating now probably about six, seven years. Uh, and I try to meditate an hour to two, sometimes three a day, even. And wow. it it is really really changed my life uh, in so many ways. I wasn't never, I was never properly taught to meditate, which I feel is a, a good thing for me because I tried so much for years, probably 10 years prior, I would, you would see me, I try and, and I say, oh, I'm getting it wrong. I can't get my mind quiet. I can't focus on the candle. I can't, like I tried out so many different techniques till I finally just sat down closed my eyes and allowed whatever was going to happen to happen in my mind and just let all the noise and the monkey brain to chatter away. And the longer I stay, I kind of out, I outlasted it to the yeah. point where it, it you, I broke its spirit. <laughs> I broke my mind spirit in the way that, well, he's going to keep talking, 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 talking. And then sometimes it would take me 30 minutes, but then I would go. And then you start, everything starts to quiet down yeah. because you're not paying attention to it and it needs an audience. This is my experience. Yeah. And then when you go away to that place where there is no silence, there, there is no noise and there's silence, time stops. Yeah. Time is perceived in a different way and where I've sometimes woken up an hour later, not woken up, but come out an hour later and going, where was I? Yeah. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that and also the bliss, the meditator's bliss, which 
is when you walk out, you, you, there is literally an aura around you that you are in just such peace. Lasts for about five minutes, 10 minutes in my world. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And then it kind of, oh, I'm back into the world. But you kind of like, you've almost touched, like you've dipped your toe into the essence of yourself or the deeper, higher version of yourself, or you've dipped your toe into the universe, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yes. And you're kind of come back and you're like, oh, I'm back to this materialistic thing again. <laughs> Lots I could say on all of that. Um, very quick thing is always come out of meditation gradually. You know, some people's like, oh, the bell rings, open my eyes, get up. It's like, no, right. I mean, it's rough. Me, it's rough. You know, whatever it is, a timer, or you just start trying to come out, just like sit there with your eyes closed for another minute or so, and then maybe just gently, you know, move your fingers or toes, little activity, and then just sort of open your eyes, like very little, little bit of light in slowly. Like I always like to, you know, good three or four or five minutes to come back, and that way that sense of bliss, whatever it is, of contentment will, will stay with you more. If you just jump out, you'll lose it. So the more, the slower you can finish a meditation, I find the more that wonderful feeling stays with you. And I mean, you're absolutely right about, you know, trying to control the mind, watching a candle or whatever. As I said before, there's many techniques which do do that. And I don't think that that's successful because, or you, or you, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting anywhere, try harder. I told you it was difficult. Try harder. And you, <laughs> it's going to take you years to get somewhere. And so you try harder. The teacher says, I told you it was difficult. And it's a vicious circle. And it is. so sad, this vicious circle that people get in. And that's what I said I liked about Maharishi's teachings. Like, don't try at all. If you notice any trying, stop it. Don't, don't even try not to try. But just like any trying, say, uh-uh, there I go. I'm trying to meditate. And do what you're doing which is basically sitting quietly, noticing, you know, all the chatter that goes on. And what I do is a little thing, it's like, but then whenever I notice a particular thought, what I was saying earlier in daily life, or when I'm in meditation, whenever I notice there's this particular thought again, just saying, okay, thank you. And just choose not to follow that thought anymore. So I'm just coming back, coming back to the body, coming back to the present moment. And then a bit later, another thought comes up. So just that thing of deliberately in the, in the practice, when I notice I'm in a thought, choosing not to follow it. But, and then just gradually, as you say, we just settle down quieter and quieter and quieter. The bliss you mentioned, um, it's interesting because I think I mentioned this in the book. The word bliss is often used in meditation circles is a translation of the Indian word ananda. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I think way back, you know, two or three hundred years ago, when European explorers were discovering India and other religions, and they were looking, what do these words mean? It got translated as bliss, which I think is slightly unfortunate because bliss in our culture means some like amazing, overpowering, ecstatic experience, euphoria almost. Yes, euphoria, which it can be, and not to say that cannot happen, it can be. But if you look at the actual Sanskrit, the root meaning of bliss, the root meaning is deep contentment, deep contentment. And I think deep contentment is actually a much better description mm. of what is happening in meditation. 
and it comes back you know so much of our thinking is providing deep discontent we, we create discontent for ourselves the whole time and so when that thinking fades away or decreases what happens is we, we settle back into a state of contentment and then when the mind is really in that still state that you talk about then it's just it's deep contentment and it's like ah yes. yeah it, everything it, is okay everything is okay so that I, I prefer to translate it as as deep contentment but i say can be that euphoric thing but more often than not it's just like ah this, yeah this is lovely I use the word bliss because I, I didn't deep contentment is actually a much better definition of it, but I try to explain it to people who haven't had that experience. I'm like, it's not happiness. No. It's not joy. It's not any of that. I go blissful is the only word that even comes close to it. And now deep contentment actually really nails it because you are, you are just, you're kind of just with one with yourself yeah. And the, and I've said this on the show many times is like, sometimes I'll come out of a meditation and I'll go, go, just go into the house and, and my daughters will run up to me and they'll look at me and they go, Oh, you were just meditating. Weren't you? They could literally feel that okay. daddy's a little different than he was before. Yeah. Not that I'm an ogre, but I'm, a, you know, but I'm normal, like a normal person. But now she's like, Oh, you are, it's almost, I've never been high. Uh, I've never, I've never taken drugs. I've never been high. I've never, never took a trip. Um, I could only, the analogy is also of a highness of like, just being high on yourself <laughs> in a non-ego way. It's, it's really, it's an incredible when you get there. And by the way, it does take, it does take time to get to that place. It takes a while of just constantly. So like now I, I could be able, I, I'm able to get into that kind of space within five minutes and depending on how busy my my mind is 10 minutes sometimes i'm able to get into it in a couple minutes i'm like i'm, I'm right there if i'm in a really relaxed state to start yeah. with yeah. but sometimes it took me sometimes it took me 30 minutes sometimes it takes me an hour and sometimes i couldn't even get to that place but i still got benefits out of it right. so yeah. it's did you actually your experience as well yes 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 and, and it's always it's always there to be noticed behind all the thoughts etc yes it gets easier and easier and for me now because i've been you know meditating longer i would i say i could just almost immediately you know i can stop take a few deep breaths and like ah, and then just ah, oh yes there it is there it is and of course as you say the thoughts come in which are coming back stopping the thought ah yes there it is that sense of whatever you want to call it deep well-being contentment peace noticing and noticing the stillness you mentioned the stillness i find it useful you know as the mind quietens down just to notice ah, oh, the stillness that's there or whatever it is whether it's a feeling of ease contentment um whatever the feeling is to actually notice it because i think what can happen in meditation is people can be so busy meditating whatever it is they're doing and the mind becomes quiet and it's enjoyable but they miss the fact it's so enjoyable that they're so busy meditating and the mind being quiet and it's like but also that sense of enjoyment or deep contentment whatever we want to call it that is also part of the present moment and so we're so busy putting our attention on the breath which is a more superficial thing we miss how it actually feels so i really encourage people 
when you're in a meditation and you're noticing that you know nice whatever it is you know you know you know what it is for you other people know what it is let's call it contentment joy ease silence include that as part of the present moment so you like be savor it it's like i think it sometimes says you know floating in a warm bath you're just floating in it and just like you've got this just to float in that sense and savor ah it's, kind of, it's yeah. kind of like being an athlete or even an artist and you're in the flow that concept of being in the flow being so in the moment of what you're doing that it becomes meditative. I know many times as an artist, I've been working or writing and you completely lose track of time. It happens to any any artist, anybody even working, even someone who's doing a manual job, your mind is so focused on one yeah. thing that you lose track of time. That's the flow and meditation gets you and you live in that yeah. moment at a much deeper place than if you're you know, an athlete, like a professional athlete when there's, you block everything out and you just get the ball into the basket or so on and so forth. It's uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah. And what I find is the more I can just savor that wonderful feeling, um, I'm actually creating a sort of a greater familiarity with it. So it becomes easier to come back to and also becomes a motivation to meditate. Like the more, the more I savor it and familiar with it, it's like, ah, oh, yes, let's meditate because you know, there was that lovely, feeling oh. that's there oh i get pulled back i get constantly and pull i'm being i'm being like almost pulled back like you need to go meditate again you need to get like because it's, it's almost a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very addictive drug uh honestly it is kind of you get that fe addictive feeling not drug but you got that addictive feeling that you just want to i want to go back there i don't know if it's happened to you before but sometimes you come out and you're like oh damn it i don't want to leave i want to stay here for another you know eight hours i don't want to have to get up to go to the bathroom i just want to stay in this place like i say it's almost like dipping the toe into the universe a bit the true your true essence we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show yeah and you get them you get that moment you just want to you don't want to go it's yeah. a we it's a it's as close to a near-death experience as you're going to get because you get to touch the other side, in right. a sense. And it's, you could say it's, it's the death of the ego mind. In yes. That, in that moment, the, e the ego mind, I mean, the mind that's always looking out for what do we need, what the danger we're talking about. It's that negative bias that's always on the lookout. That's there to actually help our own survival, but it's, that, it's the death of the ego mind while we're still alive. Like that's why I think you know different traditions. You read the thing, you know, every day I die a little, or or di dying, dying to be more alive. It's like you're letting that ego mind die away, and when it dies away, it's like ah, this is what life is like without it. And I it's think, free. as I said at the beginning, I think this is what all the great religions have been talking about in one way or another. But then it gets so mixed up with you know culture and other belief systems dogma glorified right. dogma and then gets it gets understood or misunderstood by cultures who don't actually have the taste of that experience and and then yeah it ends up totally the opposite i think of what it's really about do you have any advice on how to silence or quiet the inner critic that little voice that's constantly 
talking to you, not you're not you're not good enough, you're not this enough, you're not that enough. The thing that stops you from moving forward in a pursuit of yours in life, because it's at the end of the day, from my understanding, it's there to try to keep you safe. It doesn't want you to have pain. It doesn't want you to fail. It doesn't want you to get ridiculed or get hurt. It wants you to keep you in that little, the, the, the happy place where the tigers, there's no tigers there, right. but that's what they want. So how do you quiet that mind? How do you break through that barrier in your experience? Right. This is important because it's, it's very, it's very insidious. It's there in the background, you know, we recognize the thoughts like what I call shopping list thoughts. So I must remember to do this or call somebody that we recognize those thoughts. But these these thoughts are quieter. And the same way with thoughts in meditation, like how am I doing? How long has it been? Is this a good meditation? Am I doing it right? We take those thoughts somehow more seriously. So so with these sorts of thoughts, the inner critic thoughts, well, particularly the inner critic, one, I mean, when you recognize is when you recognize when you while you're wrapped up in it, you're wrapped up in it. And that that's it. I mean, it's there. But you know, there come these moments where it's sort of run out of steam or something interrupts you and you suddenly realize, mm -hmm. Oh, my God, there I am in it again. Um, you, you can do this thing I was saying earlier about just choosing to pause it not to follow it. But because it's so sort of deep, it'll sort of often keep going there in the background. Um, and one of the things that I found valuable, just from my own experience is to just think of anything I'm grateful for, just to get in touch with some sense of gratitude, anything, it doesn't matter what it is, what am I grateful for in life? Because it's almost the opposite. The inner critic is telling you, you know, you're not, you're not very good, you've got to do this or watch out for this. And just pausing and having a moment of gratitude, somehow it does the opposite to my mind. It diffuses it and it's like, ah, yes. And I'm grateful for, it's a lovely day or I'm grateful for, you know, being alive, or I'm grateful for what, whatever it is, or having good friends, or I'm grateful for whatever. And just to pause and be grateful for me is a way that works for me to interrupt it. Now, there's also this thing that we do to ourselves, which is the stories we tell ourselves. The, the the living in the living in the past, which is our memories, living in the future, which is our imagination, and not living in the present. But specifically, those stories that we tell ourselves: we can't do this because of this, we can't do that because of that. All of those stories that that some holds on to them for their entire life, like their entire life, they they are angry and bitter because they've they've just constantly told themselves these lies again by that voice. Well, whoever that is, we'll call it the ego, uh, trying to protect them. But that insidious story, is there a way to rewrite that story almost to kind of reprogram the mind? Because as a neuroscientist, there is programming that is hardwired from childhood. I think it's yeah. the first six years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So many of the imprints that we have from our surroundings are hardwired into us. So if we're surrounded by kind people, that kindness wiring is connected. Right. If you're beaten a lot and yelled at a lot, that's hardwired. And it takes a lot of work to, it's not software, it's hardware in the mind that needs to be kind of, I've heard the, the groove of a record. It's kind of like, you got to scratch it to yeah. disrupt it. Yes, yes. And if, you know, some people, you know, if you've had, you know, real severe trauma, yeah. I, then I think, you know, 
I think you probably need to get help from, you know, therapists who specialize in this, who can help you actually, you know, see it, come to terms with it, maybe undo it. But I think it's undoing our reaction to it, which is important. So it's, it's not it's not always easy. But in the sort of more everyday stuff, stuff from childhood or everyday stories is for me is to, again, recognize when I'm telling myself a story. Uh, uh, there I go. There's that story. And then to see to see it's just a story and a technique that I use. And I, I used to use this when I was working a lot with um, other people. Actually, I worked a lot in the corporate world where I was, work, you know, where everybody has their stories is mm. to say the first question is, um, what's the value of this story? Why is it there? It has a purpose. It's there because of something that happened in your life or because, it, you know, there, there is something about this story which is true. Um, I mean, for example, you know, let's take someone made you angry. You have a story about how awful they were, what a blah, blah, blah person they are, etc. That's the story. And there's something to it. They did say something or didn't do something that upset you. So, so yes, the story, the story's there for a reason. But then to turn it around and say, but what does the story stop me seeing? What does the story stop me seeing? And that's a way of beginning to get free from it. So if it's somebody who's made you angry, you know, what is that story that I'm telling myself about what an awful shitty person they are? What does that stop me seeing? It stops me seeing that maybe, you know, uh, they misunderstood what I said. Maybe, you know, they were wanting something from me. Maybe they had too much coffee this morning. Maybe they got problems going on in their relationship or family. What does it stop me seeing? What it stops me seeing is actually being more compassionate about the other person. And I can begin to put myself in their shoes rather than get locked up in my story of what's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. I can put myself in their shoes and the story then begins, begins to soften, begins to go away. Not always completely, but it begins to soften and I don't get so caught up in it because I can see there's another perspective here that I hadn't been looking at. The, yeah. So the the idea of sometimes sometimes our deep seated stories, our deep seated trauma, let's say um, that could be mom and dad, could be brothers, could be school, whatever it is. Sometimes the thing that triggers you has nothing to do with what it was, but it's connecting to a tremendous amount of trauma that makes you snap. And, I, and I'm going to use the perfect example of what, uh, as of this recording, what recently happened at the Oscars with, uh, with Will Smith. Um, I'm not sure if you saw what happened. Where I didn't see it, but I've read about it a lot. I mean, everybody in the world has talked about it. At one point, it is when, you know, Chris Rock, a very famous comedian, said a joke about his wife. Right. And Will got up on stage and slapped him. Yeah. I, my personal belief is that that reaction had about five or 10% maybe to do with the joke that was said about 90% of all the attacks and abuse that his relationship with his wife and his family attacks on his family over the years attacks yeah. on him. It all just came bubbling up. And at one moment, something just snapped because usually 
it was a, it was a joke that was completely off color and completely inappropriate and wrong, but comedians do pass the line sometimes. Yeah. But his reaction was so over the top and so uncharacteristic of him that you have to look at it from a neurological standpoint and you go, oh, this is not about this joke. This has to be about something else. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Is there any techniques in your experience that can help you spot that when it happens? So like when someone cuts you off and you go grab a gun to shoot them because they've, they've hurt you. It's not about that guy cutting you off. There's something else going on. Right, right. In the moment it's very difficult because when we're grabbed by someone, it's like, it's deep organic it grabs yeah, right it, i don't know of any easy way to, in the moment it takes us it absolutely takes us and i think it's how the challenge is how quickly can we recover from it how quickly can we recover you know and in that you know to, you know, say i'm sorry you know i got triggered i got triggered right and, that's the word yeah yeah and whenever we do get triggered as soon as you recognize it i mean one use word just pause pause for 10 seconds i've been you know if, if you're in a, you know with your partner or something and something happens you get triggered is just this you know say stop i've got triggered let's just pause for 10 seconds and in that time you can begin to breathe and say okay let me try and say this again or something so it's like it's how quickly can you as soon as you recognize it that's what i recommend is just take a pause, take a few breaths, and then sort of come in, come in again. So that that's, that's important. Um, also, for me, and this is a bit more longer term, um, rather than the, is, is looking at the body, listening to the body, because the body holds so much mm-hmm. information here about what's going on. That's very subtle. I mean, I had it a little while back, I got upset with this guy and I knew it was just like, it was silly and, but it was like bothering me. And it's like, I was still there and still feeling irritated by him, by what was going on. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what was going on. I knew I'd been triggered and I sat down and I just said, okay, let me just feel into my body, see what's going on in my body. Just being curious. Is there any, tension here is what's going on different feelings and as i sort of just went into my body and sat there and just noticing whatever was going on in association with this situation suddenly an image of my father came up (laughs) and i realized it had triggered something it wasn't a major thing with my father but there's a certain pattern with my parents that I didn't really like it was it wasn't a big trauma or anything It was just a certain pattern in terms of how we were that I didn't like that had got triggered and it's like ah if I hadn't sat down and said let's listen to my body I'd have never worked that out in my mind my mind was still like what did he say what was it what was that blah 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 but just by stopping listening to the body it's like ah that's interesting and once I saw what was going on, and I say it wasn't a major thing, it's like, oh, that's interesting. It's like, okay, thank you. Now, is there 
in your experience in your studies over the years is there any techniques or any advice you can give people listening how to connect with their higher self how to connect with their true nature um completely forget about trying to connect with your true nature <laughs> because it's this thing it's not connecting with something other than what we are right again it's removing it's removing the blocks the veils to our true nature so we think of true nature as something you know oh wow it's like i used to think this I and mean, when i first started reading all this indian philosophy it talked about the true self and i thought if i meditate and all this stuff then i'm going to have one day i'm going to wake up and discover the true self and it's going to be this whatever it is surrounded by angels or something outside <laughs> but, of you outside of yourself yeah yeah and more and more i just realized no what what they mean by the true self is just it's this deep sense of I that's always there. It's not the I am Peter Russell, writer, blah, 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 blah. You know, all those descriptions of myself and how other people see me. But it's the I that is aware. The I that is aware of this moment talking to you, that was aware of yesterday, that was aware of what I was experiencing as a teenager. It's, it's always there, but we don't notice it. We don't notice it. So it's rather, it's not connecting with something as rediscovering something that's always there but we miss and when we when we drop back into our true self this is what you're talking about in meditation when we drop back into just that sense of here i am not me anybody but just here i am in that time when you say you know, time and space disappear in that there's just me here being and that quality of the true self is it, it's peaceful it's also loving there's a lovingness to it it's not specifically loving this or that there's just a quality of lovingness so that i think is our true self it's it has a certain wisdom to it because it's seeing things as they are rather than through the layers of all our thinking and and it's intrinsically at peace so it's not going to connect with something that's different from what we are it's actually removing all the superficial stuff so that what we actually are can begin to reveal itself to us. It's kind of like the story of the golden Buddha. Yeah. You know that story, of course, right? Remind me of it. I say yes. I'm just thinking, do I know it? The golden Buddha is uh, many years ago, there was a giant golden Buddha in Thailand and uh, there was invaders going to come in and they were worried that they're going to take the golden Buddha. So what they did is they just started piling mud on it and piling mud on it, and piling mud on it till it became a big mound of pond. And when the invaders came, they looked at it as like, Oh, that's just a pile of dirt. And they kept going, but then it got lost in history. And then a hundred, couple hundred years later, some kid was walking by and he sees a little, little shiny gold dot and he starts digging and digging. And then all of a sudden they just start pulling more mud, mud, mud till they finally really revealed the golden Buddha. Uh, and that's a wonderful parable. Yes, actually, I didn't know that. Thank you. I didn't yeah. know that one. I think of something else. Oh, yeah. And that, that's the way it is. We we stack on this mud. <laughs> no, we, we live. I mean, I think, you know, many people, uh, you know, Most. Me, some of the time I live where I just all I see is the mud. <laughs> like the way about the tax man or this or that. Or what's going on. Um, and we we miss we, we forget. It's almost like I forget there's the golden Buddha underneath. 
there's that exactly because it got lost in time and people were just walking by and they're like, oh, there's that the big pile of dirt over there, but no one really realized that there's there was a golden boot underneath it. And it's the same thing for us. I think we walk around with just piles of mud and and we use mud as an analogy of the stories we tell ourselves, society, uh, culture, religion, um, yeah. everything. It's just all this stuff that gets piled onto you, this, this mask that we wear. You know, I come, like, I've, I've said this story a couple of times in the show, but I come from the film industry and I love talking about um, analogies in the film industry. So I believe in, that we are the actors playing a part in a scene. Yes. But unlike the actors in a normal movie, uh, I use Hannibal Lecter and Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins knows he's not Hannibal Lecter. At the end of the take, he can go back to his trailer, go back to his home, and he's Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. The mistake is that we all believe we are the characters that we are playing and identifying with the characters. And if you look at it as a movie analogy, if you thought that if Anthony Hopkins would never let go of Hannibal Lecter as a character, that's insanity. Yeah. <laughs> that's literally the definition of insanity. So yeah. that's what we are going through in a way. It's kind of letting go of the character to understand that we are truly Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> we are truly me, just that sense. Correct. Of- that I am not, you know, I could change my name, I could change, you know, many things, I could even change my gender these days, all the things I identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sense of I would still be exactly the same, that sense, that deep sense of I-ness, which is Correct. always there, it's always the same. But we, not only do we forget it, but I think it's true, you know, most people go through their lives without actually pausing to recognize that. And that's why, you know, spiritual teachings there as a reminder, like there is something, there is a deeper quality to you. And it points us inwards. And that's why I think, you know, coming back to what's about meditation, you're just sitting down, as you do, just closing the eyes and beginning to inquire within, like what is going on? And something else is like, you know, we get caught up in the thoughts, but also just to, to ask questions like, what is actually going on here? What's behind all this? And that's when you maybe notice the quietness or the silence, just like, and who is aware of all this? Who, what is it? Who is it? What is it? Not who so much, but what, what does it mean to be aware of all this? What, what do I mean by I? That's a very useful thing in meditation, just to hold that question, not, not as an intellectual question, but like, what does I refer to? What are you? What does I refer to? And just like being, what does I refer to? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Oh, it's just this sense of being that's always here. It's like it's fascinating exploration. Now you got you, you learned meditation from Maharishi, correct? Maharishi, yes. Maharishi, yes. TM. Yes, TM. Yes, exactly. I had another guest on who was at at the ashram with the Beatles. He was he was lucky enough to actually stumble upon I was nearly I was nearly there with them. And he he took pictures and it's like some of the few pictures ever of the Beatles. I think I know his I think I know his book. Yeah, yeah, he actually, yeah, he just released a book and he has a documentary coming, it came out about it and everything. Yeah, I know the guy, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful um, person. Um, but so you were there with the, the Maharishi. What was it like being in his presence? What did you learn from him besides meditation? Is there anything else that you pulled from that experience? So much. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking the other day, probably 
50% of what I have to share or offer these days comes back to my times with him, several years with him. I was in India in Rishikesh with him for a while at his ashram, but then I was helping run the TM organization in Britain. So I had for several years, I had many you know, times with him, good conversations. Ah, I mean, I, I, I learned so much. I could you know, pinpoint you know, so many things. What was it like? I think, what was it? Being in, being in a, because he's a master, he's a spiritual master. So what was it like being in a master's presence? Right. And yes, that's what I was going to come to. He really, he was a master. And what I, what I re realized being with him, listening to him, what he was saying was coming out of his own experience. I think some, some teachers, you know, they, they read all the right stuff. They know it all. And they, you know, they, they, they've got it. They're right. What they're saying. But with him, it, stuff would blow me away, what he was saying. And I realized this was coming from his own experience. And that, to me, is the mark of a true master, is they're talking from what they've discovered in their own experience. And he was continually turning things inside out, the teachings. Um, like he was saying, you know, so often we tend to sort of imitate the qualities of awakening, enlightenment. So... I suppose that's a classic example, you know, an enlightened person, you know, wouldn't do this, they wouldn't behave this way or whatever it is. And so we start saying, okay, I mustn't behave that way. I'm becoming enlightened. Or you see this, you know, a lot of talking about traditional religion, you know. So and awakened people don't get caught up in, you know, um, sexuality so much. So I must become celibate to become awakened. Whereas what he was saying is when you awaken, then maybe some of that, you know, sexuality doesn't seem quite so important. The stuff that's rather sort of misguided and abusive is no longer there. So that begins to unfold naturally as a consequence of awakening, rather than we chase the consequences, hoping that's going to lead to awakening. So things like that really, really struck me. And, right. You know, the times we'd sit in his bedroom late at night, just delving deep into, you know, well, if in the Brahma Sutras, it says this, but in the Bhagavad Gita, it says this, how do we marry those two ideas together? And, you know, I can't remember what, what his answers were, but I just remember times like that. Um, it was, yeah. It's like, and it's really interesting because, you know, someone like Yogananda, who's also another spiritual master, he he would always. I think it was a great. I forgot who it was, but he was talking to his, his one of his um, his disciples, uh, and uh, and they were saying, uh, "Yogananda, uh, do I I I I I I can't stop all of my vices, you know, because of this stuff that you're teaching me. I want to keep doing it." And Yogananda was like, "Do you drink?" He goes, "Yes, you may continue." Do you do you have promiscuous sex? He goes, yes, you may continue. Uh, do you do drugs? Yes, you may continue. He goes, but if you continue with these teachings, I'm not sure that you're going to want to continue those, which is exactly he, which is exactly what he said. Because if yeah. you yeah, you keep going, do you do you? But if you keep going down this road, those things are going to fall away because they will naturally begin to fall away. Yes, which was so so profound. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. What a wonderful, what a wonderful, wonderful teaching. Right. Um, no, I was always fascinated because I've heard, like I spoke to the, the other, um, the filmmaker who made, the, who was with, with the Beatles 
and now you the, who, who talked to Maharishi. I always am fascinated when, when I can talk to somebody who's had experience, deep experiences with a spiritual master uh, that was either living or is currently living and what that energy feels like in the conversations. Because I find that so many, um, as they call them, phony holies out there who've read all the right books, they know how to quote the right people, but their words don't, they don't, they don't have any weight to it. It's too fluffy. But when someone like, like you read autobiography of a yogi in every sentence, you're just like, Oh, (laughs) <laughs> or, or the Maharishi, you like, oh, you just feel the depth, the the weight of the assurance, almost of a knowing that they have, that it's yeah. not coming from a superficial place. It's coming from such a deep place that you can sense it. And that's why I was wondering if you were able to feel that. Exactly, exactly. It's coming from their own awakening experience rather than an understanding of what it's about. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. It's kind of like, uh, I love your analogies like, oh, I have to be celibate because uh, awakened people are celibate. It's kind of like, well, uh, if I want to be an NFL player, I must eat 7,000 calories a day to gain <laughs> muscle. He goes, yeah, but you forgot about the working out. So like, no, they're at a different place. They are, they, they are, no. you're looking at the result, not the journey that gets to that place, yeah. Yeah. which is so, uh, <laughs> so fascinating. In your book, there's a chapter called the parable of the rope. What is the parable of the rope? It's something I came up with. It's about um, letting go. And it's actually relevant to what we've been talking about. The parable of the rope, what I tell in the parable is some guy is holding on to a rope. He's holding on to this rope. He's got to hold on. He's up in the air holding on to this rope. And everybody's telling him it's so important to hold on. Everybody else, he looks around. Everybody else is holding on to the rope, you know, scared they're going to fall. And that's life and that's the life you know we've been talking about right. the worry and so along comes this wise woman and she says to him you know you don't need to do this you know there's a whole spiritual practice of letting go and he says what come on come on yeah this is so important and so she says you know let me just give you the first initiation you you're willing to lift one finger she said you yeah, i promise you if you lift one finger you'll feel a little easier a little better a little taste of bliss and so he says okay so he lifts one finger and he does feel oh yeah a little better and so it goes on you know she persuades him you know you can feel even if you lift a second finger and he mutters up the courage a second finger and then you know she comes to the third finger and he's like do i can i do this so he finally does and, and he's hanging on by his little finger and in the parable, she says, you know, I've, I've already taken you so far. I can't do the rest for you. You know, just trust me. You have to do the final bit of letting go yourself. You have to let that little finger soften and relax and let go. And like, he's like, what? Anyway, he finally does. And nothing happens. And he realizes he's been standing on the ground the whole time. And this, <laughs> this, is, this is the parable. You know, we stand in the ground of our own being. Mm-hmm. You know, the sense of deep beingness, the I am, it's there. We're, we're standing in our own being. We're out there holding on to all these things we think are important to hold on to in order to be happy and have life go well and all this stuff. We're holding on to them all. And then when we finally, you know, let go, it's like, ah, here I am. I didn't fall. Nothing awful happened. I'm just here, standing in the ground of my own being. It's it's fantastic parable. It's a fantastic story because it's so true that we 
we hold on to so much. And this whole conversation has been about letting go, which I love, which is about the title of your book about letting go of, of stories and things and beliefs. I've discovered that I've tried to control the boat that's on a river for so long. I wanted to go faster. I wanted to go a direction that I, I wanted to go on. I'm trying to control constantly. And it's rarely ever worked out for me. <laughs> you know, sometimes I even get out of the boat and push the boat in the river to go faster inside the river. It's like you're trying to push the river to go faster. And I finally, in my, in my years being walking the earth like Kane from Kung Fu. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, <laughs> I've discovered that you've got to let go and let the trust and have the faith that the river will guide you in the direction that it is best for you. And that is the ultimate ability because you are literally just letting go and letting the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, guide you in the direction of where you're supposed to be in this life. And that's extremely terrifying for most human beings. It was for, it was for me, but once I realized that of that, and I finally just let go and close my eyes, I was standing on the floor <laughs> and it was, it's, it's very similar in that story. Do you find that as well in your experience? Yes, I do. Um... And to say, that's not to say we shouldn't, you know, be proactive and make- Oh, no, you've cut, chop wood, carry water. Chop yes, wood, carry not water. not saying, whatever. It's, it's no, not, no, 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 I agreed. But it's about being open. It's being open to what what shows up. And I think when I look at, back at my life, all the major things that have happened, the significant things happened despite my planning. <laughs> Specifically despite your planning. Yes, there are things like little coincidences. I'd meet someone who'd say this, or here's an opportunity, um, whatever. I never planned to go to India with the Maharishi. He said, do you want to come? I said, yeah. <laughs> and it's like things coming along and saying yes, or sometimes things come along and saying no. It's like, but being open, being open to what presents itself. And and within that, yes, there's a lot we, you know, need to do like you know if i'm going to india yes i need to plan i need to earn the money to do that right work out how to get there and do all this and make sure i have the time so there's lots of that that needs to go on but not deciding um too far in advance what what my life is going to be <laughs> yeah what, yeah i, I think if you, make, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Exactly. And I think only through age do you realize that plans generally, it never ends up the way you planned ever. Right. And most of the times, thank God, it never ended up the way you planned. Because if you would have, if everything that you would have planned had come true, your life would be an absolute disaster. <laughs> Am I right? I'm like, from the from that first relationship you wanted in school, like, oh, that girl's so cute. I really want to date her. When she said no, there was probably a really good reason why could have, that could have gone off into a terrible uh, thing. Or I wanted that job or wanted this to really work out. I wanted to build an empire doing this. But really, that's not the path you need to be working. So the universe is constantly pushing you. And sometimes it nudges you. Yeah. And when you don't listen, the sledgehammer comes out. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Now I look back on my life now. 
I probably wouldn't change a thing. Maybe a couple of tiny things, which maybe I, you know, were in my youth, things that I actually do oh, look back with a little embarrassment. Oh, God, like, the youth. The waste, the wasted youth. <laughs> basically, where I am now, I am content. Life is good. If I went back and changed anything, I might not be here so content. I might be, but who knows? Not in this incarnation, not the way we are right now. We we are, are the mistakes we've made, the journey we have, the shrap, I call it the shrapnel of life that yeah. comes at you. It is who we are. Without it, we wouldn't be who we are. Um, there was a book, one of your early books uh, called, the, that you coined the phrase, the global brain. Global brain, yes. Can you talk a little bit about the global brain? Yes, I wrote this way back, it came out of my college days. I actually, I did a degree in computer, graduate degree in computer science as well. So I thought that was going to be my career, science computing. And I was working on some of the very early networking of computers and realized that this was in the early 70s, that the, the direction of computers was not going to be bigger and bigger computers, was actually going to be linking computers together. And I was working with getting two completely different computers to communicate. We had a cable this thick coming through the ceiling, right. <laughs> which would be a fraction of the power of your USB cable today. Anyway, so I then looked around and saw the Gaia hypothesis had come out, Jim Lovelock, James Lovelock produced the Gaia hypothesis saying that, you know, the, the whole of the living system of the earth functions as a single organism. And I said, well, okay, you know, we know what, you know, the rainforests are like the circulatory systems, they're doing this, and, you know, they're also a bit like the liver and things. What's human beings doing here? We're, we're this young upstart in the ecosystem. What are we doing? And it strikes me what we're good at is processing information. We are the information processors. So that led to the idea of we are like an embryonic brain growing for the planet. And then I saw, you know, what was happening with computers and the networking of computers was going to start linking the nerve cells of the global brain, i.e. human beings, going to start linking us together into a collective, much more collective system, which, of course, you know, over the 50 years since then has been happening. Now, you know, here we are. Mm -hmm. you know using the internet talking like this and so that was the idea and then i could see but was this going to become a sane global brain or an insane global brain you know if it's if we carried on with the you know materialistic you know values etc would it actually be helping humanity so i saw there was also the need for you know spiritual growth spiritual awakening of people you know, beginning to, you know, to wake up from that self-centeredness that rules so much of our life to actually coming back to be, being in touch with their with their true nature, being more able to come at ease rather than coming from the ego mind. So I saw that was also re a really important part of the growth of the global brain was to be able, was the awakening of humanity. And, you know, as we look back in hindsight, it's been both, you know, there's been like the the internet and all that it's spawned has certainly fostered the awakening of consciousness. Certainly it has. I mean, just doing this with you, you know, we're talking about right. consciousness to whoever listens and there's thousands, millions and millions of other things, other people teaching, sharing different ideas. All of that is promoting the awakening. And at the same time, the materialistic values, you know, I think 
porn as you know one of the biggest sellers on the internet still and you know shopping and it's still that materialistic consciousness so the two are sort of hand in hand the materialism is running a lot of the show and underneath it the spiritual teachings are just being made available in contemporary language to everybody which has never been possible before yeah and i i agree with you and i mean i mean you have the experience of the last 50 years you've seen how consciousness has risen in society the yeah. concept of meditation was like you were insane in the 60s and 70s you're like you're a hippie you you there's, there's that what now ceos do it now there's apps now yoga right. is a everybody understands what yoga is everyone knows right. understand what like the concept of channeling is right. and the, these things that were so esoteric before are now part of the zeitgeist. So there yeah. is an acceptance of these teachings and they're starting to come up more and more yeah. um, in, 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 in the world. I do believe that the world is going through some massive shift right now. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it because between the earth going through whatever it's going through with the storms and the, you know, the earth is literally angry uh, <laughs> and wherever you are in the world, the pandemic shift, shaking the entire planet. I've never seen anything like that before. Um, what's going on right now in the Ukraine and, and that kind of, it's kind of like almost the, 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 the death rattle of the old trying to hold on to what, you know, that whole thing He's fighting a war from, 1980. He's not fighting a war of today. You know, it thinks things like that, all this kind of a shift is happening and you can't, and the economies and the way the economies are working in the world. So there's so much change happening right now, more so than it was in the seventies, eighties, nineties, there was obviously shifts, but nothing like this. What is your take on what is happening? And are we getting closer to this hopeful global awakening where people just say enough is enough and dig a little bit more into the spiritual and pull away from the material yes it's difficult difficult to prophesy because i know prophecies can easily turn wrong i think as i said i think the two things are happening in parallel definitely and you know just the disgust of the, you know what is happening in ukraine oh, yeah. at this moment all the real deep concerns about the you know climate crisis and how we're responsible for it and how much how much this comes back to growth you know we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show and how wedded we are to growth and so there's a big there's a big questioning going on about many many different things and I think there is what I call an unraveling of the old system and the unraveling is not going to be easy. It's going to be, you know, different things are going to start falling apart and that's, it's going to be hard. We're going to see a lot more of that coming. So I think yeah, that's the pessimistic side is you ain't seen nothing yet. There's more and more, the systems are breaking down, the systems yeah. are breaking down and that's not, that's not going to be an easy ride. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, I have great faith in people, what people can become. And 
just the more of us that can, you know, let go, can awaken, the more compassionate we can be to others, the less antagonistic we are, the less ruled by our ego minds and fear that we are, the more we're going to be able to care for each other and actually make much clearer decisions for the future, not be bound by, by the past. It's like, I think we have to let go of the way we've done things in the past and be able to think more creatively with see things with new eyes. I think that's really going to be important. And this thing we touched on being stable in ourselves, you know, so that we're not every thing that suddenly surprising event that happens, we're not shaken so much inside. Like, can we sort of maintain that inner stability and say, okay, okay, this is what's happening. What is the best way to proceed here? What is appropriate? What's what's needed from me here? So I think we're really going to be called to draw upon our inner resources like never before in order to decide how to best manage the world we find ourselves in. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to ask all my guests. Um, what is your mission in this life? My mission is pretty clear for me. It's basically to distill the what I see as the essential wisdom of the world's spiritual traditions, distill that down into its essence, and then to disseminate it, share it as widely as possible in contemporary language everyday contemporary language so that people can relate to it and benefit from it. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? <laughs> to live. <laughs> <laughs> Not to try, just, to, try. To, just live, be, to be. To live, to live fully as long as possible, as healthily as possible, as kindly as possible. Yeah. And where can people find out more about your work and your new book? Um, my website, peterrussell.com, um, two hours on the Russell, P Peter, P T R R U W S E W L.com. There's all my, there's my latest books right up there, bits of it. There's other books. There's lots and lots of videos. There's about 400 pages of writings I've done over the years. All of me is up there in one way or another. And lots, yeah. Peter. Go to YouTube. There's a lot of videos of me on YouTube as well. Uh, Peter, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor speaking to you. It has been a, a wonderful conversation about letting go, and hopefully people listening will let go a little bit more in their life uh, after this conversation and hopefully after reading your book. So my friend, thank you so much for all the hard work you've been doing for, for humanity uh, over these years. So I appreciate you, my friend. Great. Thank you. And really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you very much. I want to thank Peter so much for coming on the show and sharing his thoughts and ideas about consciousness with all of us. Now, if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to reach out to Peter and get links to any of his books, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash zero five nine. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.